I want to read to you Ephesians 4 and the first six verses. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we begin to unpack and to understand something of the implications of the gospel, I ask, Father, that you'll give us ears to hear, hearts to be repentant and soft and teachable, and help us to immediately see the ways in which each one of us must change and grow to bring pleasure to the heart of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, in the course of this letter, we've reached something of a turning point in the ideas and the themes and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. If you've spent time in Paul's letters, you will know, and may well have noticed or heard before, that very often he front loads the rich doctrine and teaching around the gospel in slightly different ways in each one of his letters and seeks to kind of impart understanding and reason and depth to the Christians in terms of their understanding of of our faith. But then there very often comes in his letters a turning point, a transition point, or a pivotal moment where everything that we believe is now rammed home in practical teaching so that there is a connection between the things that we think and profess or confess and the ways that we then work it out and live it out. And of course, you know, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for any length of time, or perhaps there's someone outside the church observing the lives of Christians and of churches, that it is very much desirable that we bring these things together, that the things that you confess and profess about Christ are lived out in very practical ways consistently. And that where there is a creak or a kind of the crack of the breaking of those two things in a person's life, or much worse, in the life of an entire church or congregation or gathering of Christians, where hypocrisy comes in, that's very much damaging to our authenticity, our sincerity, our integrity as God's people. And so Paul was never content just to teach people what to think. He also wanted to show them how they must then work it out. And that, of course, is a powerful theme in Scripture. I think, for example, of these words in James chapter 1, where he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be pleased. He'll be blessed, sorry, in his doing. So this is where we've gotten to in this letter. And 
the, the teaching that will follow in the next few chapters is going to be an unfolding, unraveling of the many ways in which you're called to live out the Christian faith that we've been learning about in the first few chapters. But there's something also just in this first verse. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The language that Paul's using is calling for your attention here, friends. I would suggest that in every sphere of life, but especially, I think, in, in the, the context of the church, there are leaders you should ignore and leaders you should pay attention to. The leaders that you should ignore are those whose lives have never really borne the cost in any meaningful way for the faith which they're wanting to teach. So a Christian leader whose life is surrounded entirely with comfort who never causes offense, who is essentially um, a kind of slick or professionalized version of ministry, these are people you should not pay attention to because there's no real evidence that the thing that they're teaching is really believed in their own hearts. But when Paul speaks to us and he, he grabs your attention right at the outset here and reminds you he's a prisoner of the Lord, he's wanting to call attention to the fact that everything that he had taught was worked out in practice in his life. He had borne the, he'd paid the price. He'd borne the cost of being a confessing follower of Jesus. And people like that are those that we need to pay attention to. And he, he calls here, he uses very strong language. He says, I urge or beg you as a prisoner. And the question is, what is he wanting to impress upon us First of all, as we work out everything that we've been learning so far in the letter to the Ephesians, the answer is that is in a phrase here. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to walk worthily. He's saying, in effect, that there is there's a reality about you as a Christian, the calling to which you've been called. You're now a saint, a follower of Jesus. And the great challenge in the Christian life is to bring a connection so that you walk worthily to that which you've been called. And this is a challenge that comes through many places in his letters. Another example is there in Colossians chapter 1. He says, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to walk worthily, fully pleasing, to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So clearly, it's possible as a Christian to carry the name of Jesus, to belong to God's people, to be a professing believer, and yet to not walk worthily of the calling. That's true in a very general sense. And the constant call of the New Testament is, live up to that which you have received. Live in the good of that which you have now been party to and privileged with. But there's a more specific thing that Paul's calling our attention to here when he says, I urge you to walk worthily. And it isn't just to do with a, a more generic, if I can put it that way, um, call towards godliness. Paul's interest here, all the weight of his teaching, like the, the heaviness of a hammer or an axe, is, is weighted on one specific point which he's going to drive home in, in the first half, at least of this chapter, chapter 4. And it has to do with the experience of us being a community. You see, everything that he's been talking about 
has been about the gospel of Christ calling the nations together to be one new man in Christ. How God has rescued you from all kinds of backgrounds. Those of you who, are, who didn't know Jesus, who've been called into the family from different races and tribes and nationalities and different backgrounds of, of different experiences of, of being wrecked and ruined by your sin. And he says, that's what Jesus did. He called you from all the diversity of our backgrounds and brought us into this experience of being God's people, this new spiritual temple, this new family. And now the application of that is what he's beginning to work out. How do we then walk? worthily and the answer is that we're called to walk in an extraordinarily divine supernatural experience of unity and of community as a family of God some of you are not Christians and you may be thinking well in what way is this relevant to me and why should I listen because Evidently, if you're on something of a spiritual journey and you're trying to understand the claims of Jesus, my guess is that you are very much interested in in, in Jesus. Is he who said he was? Did he really die on the cross? Was he raised from the dead? And what are the implications for my life? But for me to begin to talk to you about the church might seem to you to be a redundant and irrelevant subject. And I think part of the problem here that we need to wrestle with, and this may also have affected your heart if you're a Christian, part of the problem that we need to wrestle with is that we tend to think about faith and the Christian faith as just one more choice in a consumeristic age. One of the greatest markers of the modern human existence, especially in our Western world, is the proliferation of choice based upon your personal liberties that you get to choose so many dimensions and aspects of your life. You get to choose how you express yourself in fashion or don't express yourself in fashion. You get to choose with the device that you hold in your pocket what, what, what information or entertainment or organization or productivity apps that you access in and through that. And you delete the ones that you're not interested in. You get to make choices about the person that you marry or don't marry, or the, pe- the person, people that you're interested in to date, and there's a proliferation of choice there as well, isn't there? You get to subscribe to certain um, information channels and entertainment channels, and then unsubscribe from the ones that you find uninteresting or boring or whatever it is that puts you off. Your life is surrounded by the extraordinary diversity of choice. And the great problem is that we then bring that thinking into our approach to faith and to the Christian faith in particularly and tend to think of it as just one more app that you can download to your life to open at will and close when, when it's no longer relevant or interesting to you. And I need to just dispel that myth right at the outset. You see... Being a Christian is much more like enlisting to the military. When you sign up to the military, in a sense, you waive your rights. You find yourself alongside people that you might not choose to spend time with, many dodgy characters to your left and to your right. This is what the church is, friends. And along with that, there is also then some of the pain and the cost involved with following Christ. 
And whenever Jesus invited people to become followers of him, it was never purely a one-to-one relationship, me following Jesus in isolation. It was always the experience of being listening to his, his new army or being part of his family and then the experience of finding yourself alongside all of the strange, weird, and wonderful people that you see around you even today. And experiencing the new relationships. Now that's a lot harder, isn't it? Than the lifestyle choice approach to spirituality. I like a little bit of this just to improve my life in a certain way. It's much, much harder. But it's infinitely more rewarding as well. I want to ask with you the question of how we're called to walk in this unity then. The first, there's a few challenges I want to bring out of these verses. I think it's going to take us a couple of weeks to unpack them fully, and we'll come to slightly even more of the intense practical outworking of this next week, God willing. But I want you to see a few challenges today that I hope will shake your approach to church in general, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, your posture, your demeanor, your commitment, the way you spend your time. It has very real implications on all of those dimensions of your life. And a few challenges I want to draw out. The first is this. The first thing you need to do is to begin to see what unity or community and family is. I am not at all certain that this is widely understood in the body of Christ. And I'm not at all certain that it's widely understood by the people in this room. I reckon that for, most, for the most part, those of you who are part of our church, you consider yourself to be part of the Grace London family, you have begun to reckon with and understand the implications for your life in terms of the experience of family and of community. But I also know that there's a portion of the church who live at a distance, and therefore your outworking of your faith hasn't really, you haven't really been integrated into, into church in a very meaningful way. And it seems to me to speak of a lack of understanding. So what is this unity that we're called to? And by the way, I just need to dismiss that. We're not thinking here today of the unity that ought to exist between churches and Christianity on a global level. That is a theme for another day, but in many ways I feel that it's far above my pay grade to talk about that kind of thing. Only the Lord Jesus has the capacity to bring his people together in global unity, and I believe absolutely that he will. We'll discover more of that in the weeks to come. However, it begins with the experience of unity within the family of a local church like this one, the people who are sat around you. And that is what Paul is talking about. And I think that's evident from the kinds of ways that he's driving this home, the characteristics that are necessary. He talks about humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with or putting up with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking about your harmony and affection and love and friendship with the people around you within the family of the church. Now, this seems to me to raise a massive problem these days. A reason, in other words, why we fail to understand what community and family is. And the problem is this, that we are living in a day and an age in which there are many synthetic, plastic, artificial, commodified versions of community. Just a week ago, I bought a new phone case for my wife's phone 
and the email confirmation arrives of its dispatch and soon arrival through my front door. And the line, the big line in the email was, welcome to the family. <laughs> I mean, it's a plastic phone case. <laughs> and that the cheapening of the language of family and community is everywhere these days. You think about how very often people who have large followings on social media talk about their followers as their community, their family. But I, you know, I need to just disabuse you of that ridiculous idea. The idea that exchanging barbs with people on Twitter is family or community. Or posing in too few clothes on Instagram to fill up some void in your soul. The idea that that's family or community. Or trying to go viral on TikTok by being as lunatic and entertaining as possible. Just in order to make yourself feel like you're special. That is not family and that's not community. Unfortunately, it's one of the plastic and synthetic versions of community that our world tries to, to, to press upon us. And to buy into that is to shortchange yourself, friend. Unfortunately, that's just capitalism turning you into a product. And the reason why I stress this, friends, is not just because I enjoy doing that, which I do. It's <laughs> because of the risk that we transfer all of the shallow thinking that exists in the world into our experience of church. And tragically, I think that's very often the case. And let me give you a few examples of how this can work out in practice. Evidence is that you don't understand what unity and community means. Top of my list would be those of you who, whose commitment to church is so weak and your attendance so infrequent so as to make your participation in the family relatively meaningless. It's like buying a smart running watch, a Garmin watch, and, and, uh, and a pair of new running shoes, and then calling yourself a runner. You know, no, it takes, it takes actual miles on the road to call yourself a runner. And there's the same sense in which being part of the church family means the dedicated devotion of being participating in the life of the church week in, week out, almost on a daily basis, actually, is the New Testament expectation. When you stay anonymous is another example. When you're, you're, you're dipping in and out of church without really being known by anybody. And then your experience of being here on a Sunday morning, for example, is like going to the theater, but a lot less entertaining, unfortunately. Or when you drift from church to church so that you're never really known in any church community and you think of yourself as a member of Christ's global church. But unfortunately, you're not known in any real sense by any specific church or its leaders. And then you're, you're like a plane that can fly at low altitude under the radar, anonymous and unknown, drifting from place to place. When you imagine, now I know I'm speaking to the choir here because you're actually present in the room, but when you imagine that, that, uh, that streaming online church is church, and it's like saying that, it's like saying that you, you know, because you watched Glastonbury on TV that you attended a festival. I don't think you attended a festival 
unless you've really had your face in someone's armpit in a crowd and slid around in the mud. This doesn't appeal to me, but I wouldn't claim to have been to one unless I'd done those things myself. Or if you're someone who gives regularly to a church, but, but your, your, your actual, the openness of your life to that church and your, your reaction with other, interaction with others is diminished. It's like an absent father who sends child support to his, to his kids, but isn't actually present with them. You can see how this is deficient. And perhaps most commonly is when you, you, you want to participate in church life and you know a few people, but they're only people who are exactly like you. The friend that sits on your left or on your right. And actually, although I think that's a good first step, in many ways it's the denial of everything we've been exploring and understanding about the multiplicity and diversity and beauty and the rainbow, um, extraordinary, captivating vision of the church that Paul had in mind when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Real church community is when God binds your heart to people unlike you because you're bound by your affection for Jesus. And friend, all I want to, to help you to come to is a point where if you recognize yourself in any of those descriptions, you can acknowledge that whatever you've been doing has been deficient and that the Lord wants you to change. Understand what unity is. If I could sum it up in a word, I would say it's discomfort. It is discomfort. If you want to know what church community is and what real family is, it is discomfort. Which is why Paul speaks with the powerful urgency pressing on them. As we'll explore, I think next week, he uses the kind of language. He says, putting up with one another. Eager, urgent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, this is something that will be constantly tested in your life, and it calls for you to buy in in a powerful way. What is unity? It's discomfort. It's your life opened up to others in a real deep and profound way. Here's a second challenge. You then need to see why it matters. I think it would be possible for you to dismiss this as a peripheral issue in the Christian life. As long as you're good with Jesus, then it doesn't really matter your relationship to his people, to the church. Now, in order to explore the reason why this matters profoundly to Paul, why he's urgently, he's on his knees, remember, praying for them, and why he's pressing upon them, this is the thing I want you to understand. In order to grasp this, you have to understand that the unity or the community or the family of the church is something that exists in a spiritual plane before it's experienced in reality. And this is what I mean. You see, look carefully again how, how he says in, from verse 4. He says, there is one body, then one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over and through all and in all. Now, again, just bear with me for a second to understand what this is saying. Because we live in the age of choice, we think that we can define everything about our existence. And we've lost sight of the fact that there are certain givens. Things that are true about you, regardless of whether you chose them or not. So your ancestry and your family, you didn't choose it. 
it is true of you, irrespective of your choice. Your sex or gender, given to you by the living God, unchangeable in his sight, it is a given. Your age, as much as we might want to live in denial, once we cross certain thresholds, I'll be turning 40 next year. (sighs) It's a given, friends, and there's nothing that I can do to slow the sands of time. I can only seek to live every day in the light of the reality of the shortness of the life God has given me. Your certain death. We may well live as though it isn't a reality that's looming over us all, but it is real. And so to, be, to live within the limitations of certain givens, definitions of who you are and what God made you to be, is a liberating thing when you then begin to flow in that reality in a, in a very real way. And that's basically what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you are a church family in a spiritual sense because you're one in Christ. And there is nothing that any of us can do to deny that fact. It's your new ancestry, so to speak. And you're a brother or a sister within the family that Christ is creating. That's a fact about you. But the great challenge is to connect what's true objectively in Christ with your lived out experience and commitment to the people of God in an earthy day-to-day sense. So that what is true in an eternal sense that we are God's people eternally, one family in Christ, is visibly worked out in the life of the church community, in all of our gatherings and interactions. Paul is saying that. He's pressing it upon us. The question we're wrestling is, why is this such an important reality to display and to live out and to work out practically so that it's not just true at the theoretical or theological level, but also true in your day-to-day life? I want to give you a few answers to that. One is, is to do with your witness to the watching world. The church is called to be unified because unity is a beautiful thing when you see it. You will have had the experience many times, I'm sure, of walking into a harmonious household where you see a healthy, intact marriage A husband who adores and dotes on his wife and a wife who is loving and respectful of her husband and the beauty and intimacy that that creates and the harmony and peace in a home. Children who actually like each other and get along and listen to their parents and want to spend time with their parents. Their devices are not in sight. And when you go into that kind of a household, you want to stay in that kind of a household. If it hasn't been your experience, you you may even want to be part of that home, part of that family. And it seems to me that that is exactly one of the primary reasons why we're called to live out what's true of us. With the people of God, with the family of God, now live it out in a very beautiful, visible way to the watching world. Because it's attractive, it's appealing, it's needed. On the other hand, if we 
you know, to borrow the language from one of the other letters in the New Testament, if we bite and devour each other, or much more likely in our day and age, we just live in kind of silos of personal, personal autonomy and liberty devoid of connection with the, those around us, then unfortunately the church becomes no longer the appealing family that God called her to be. You know, think about the example of the United States at the moment. I love America and I love Americans. I could spend a lot of time there and I found them to be the warmest people. But when you see them biting and devouring each other in the political temperature that's going on there right now, and I know that some of that's affecting and infecting us as well, it's something in the air and in the water, isn't there, right now? You don't necessarily want to be a part of that, do you? And I think there's something about that that many people have looked at churches and seen them as cold or divided or judgmental. And as long as those things characterize the life of the church, we are no witness to a watching world. And friend, the responsibility to live out, therefore, the salvation that God has put into you that now that you're part of the family is not someone else's responsibility. It is yours. It's how you choose to posture yourself towards the church for the sake of the watching world. It's to do with your witness. Another thing is it's to do with your walk, your maturing, your growth in Christ. You know that when Jesus saves you and you're given the gift of salvation, there is a massive gap, isn't there, between the things that the Bible says are true of you and the lived out practical reality. The Bible says that you're a saint or a holy one or someone set apart for God. But you look at your life and think, I'm pathetic. And you see all the problems and all the contradictions and all the agonies of soul that exist within you. And the calling of the New Testament is grow into that which God has called you to be. I urge you, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Grow into it. Mature into it. I saw not so long back a little segment in the news of a woman, I think in Australia, who has a, a condition that causes, has caused her body to stop developing beyond the, eight, the, the, the kind of physical age of an eight-year-old. So that mentally she is fully developed. She's a grown woman with all the mature thinking of adulthood. But her body looks and sounds like that of a child. And of course, that causes all kinds of problems in her life and is a great challenge for her to overcome. And the obvious thing that you, you sense intuitively is that this is not, it's not, a, it's not right. There's something wrong with her development. And that's true. But unfortunately, that can also be true of you as a believer. It can be as though having confessed Jesus, having become a disciple of Christ, having become a follower and part of his family, you remain like one of the children. My house is full of them. And my, the, the abiding hope in my life is grow up. Just keep grow, Please grow up. And if I didn't feel that that was going to happen, I would somehow... I think I would despair at some point. I mean, it's a delight, don't get me wrong. They're wonderful, they're treasures, they're very precious to me. But grow up, children. 
And the same is true within the context of the church family. Now listen, the reason why I'm stressing that is because many Christians think of maturity through lenses that are not biblical lenses. You might think of maturity purely at the intellectual level, that you have, you, have, you have understood things that others don't understand. And that might be a dimension of maturity, but it's not the whole thing. Worse still, some people think of maturing as a Christian as developing a kind of religious aura. The certain frown and tone of voice when you pray, the, the appropriate vocabulary that indicates a deep and abiding walk with the Lord. And those things may or may not be true of you, but they're, they're neither here nor there because what the Bible says is that the, the definition of Christian maturity is your ability to love people and especially the family of God. Have you reckoned with that? It also matters because of your worship. A follower of Jesus is, above all things, someone whose life is poured out in worship towards him, saying, Lord, I belong to you. Do you remember what Jesus said godliness is? When he defined the greatest commandments of the Old Testament in answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he pulled together what we think of as the, the vertical dimension of spirituality with the horizontal plane. He pulled them together so they become an inseparable reality in the life of the Christian. And the one is an indicator of the other. So that if you claim to be a believer who loves God, but has failed to work that out in terms of your love towards others, and especially to the household of faith, the family of God, then you are deluding yourself. There's a verse in John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4, a couple of verses says this. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, brother is the technical New Testament word for fellow believer, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Why does it matter? It matters because of your witness, because of your walk and maturing, and because of your worship. You're loving God more when you are deeply embedded into the life of God's people, pouring out your life in love and service and commitment and affection towards the family. The third challenge to bring this home then is this. You then need to work this out by giving yourself to this unity. Giving yourself to it. And this is no small thing because there are so many challenges that you and I have to overcome. If you're someone who experiences something on the spectrum between overt spirit, uh, social anxiety or just social awkwardness, I feel you. The temptation is to stay safely isolated in a cocoon. If you're someone who's experienced conflict with fellow believers in Christ, been hurt and wounded, and if you're in and around church for any length of time, it will happen to you, I'm sad to say. 
The temptation is to withdraw and to protect yourself by maintaining distance relationally and perhaps even abandoning commitment to church altogether, as many, many people do. If you're someone who is content with being anonymous, your temptation is to log off, so to speak. You check in and then log off as quickly as possible. The service has ended, I'm out the door. If you're someone who finds others to be irksome and irritating and a little odd, then of course they might just get your back up and you want to avoid people. And friend, if there's one thing you've got to hear above all in terms of what Paul is urging upon these people when he says, I urge you to walk worthy of the, the calling to which you've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What you have to hear is this, that this loving unity is hard. Christ has called you to do a hard thing. Of course, it's nothing less than what he was willing to do for us because he left all the glory and comforts and dignities of being in his Father's right hand eternally to take on flesh and dwell among us. He's not calling for more from you than he is willing to give to us. But it is hard nonetheless. And I'll tell you this as well, friends. The more you give, the harder it gets. The more embedded you are in the life of the family of God, the more your heart is exposed to the wounds and rejections and offenses and misunderstandings that others can cause you. It gets harder. And it's a lot like, it's a lot like your earthly family. Or it's like parenting. Parenting is the pouring of your life into those who are dependent upon you, need your love. And of course, it opens your heart up as a parent to the hurts and wounds that can then affect you as children so often inadvertently or deliberately rebel or cause pain against their parents at some point. But would you choose not to love just because it's hard? You wouldn't, because it's right. How are we going to do this, friends? It's not going to be by a sheer force of will, because I think, weirdly, I think this is one area where the world around us actually happens to agree with the church about the great ideal of loving community. It's not an area where we reach, uh, where, where we cause offense with non-believers. There's many other areas where we do, but this is not one of them. The world around us tends to agree this is the ideal for humans, to live in community and mutual love and respect. There was perhaps a time in the 1960s and 70s when culturally we were all doe-eyed and, and, uh, and uh, naive about this. The hippie era, the, the era of John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine no wars, imagine no possessions, imagine everyone living life in peace. I think if you could look ahead you know, to today's world, would he think that we're any closer to that? No, it seems to me that we're further away. We can't achieve this by any sheer force of will. We're living in an intensely judgmental age, in the age of lynchings, public lynchings in terms of people's reputation and counseling, an age of animosity in the absence, the unavailability of forgiveness, actually, 
So I don't think that you can achieve this kind of community and unity and love apart from the, the work of God. But the thought that Paul wants to drive home for us all, and this is where I want us to dwell on as we close, is that we have the power of the gospel to create this among us. Listen to these repeated statements, the repetition of our oneness. He says we're one body, which means that all the divisions that existed outside of the church among us are erased when you belong to this family. He speaks of one spirit, which is, of course, speaking about the Holy Spirit who fills you with the presence of Christ in your heart, but also moves among us as a community. We spoke not so many, so, so many weeks back about being a spiritual temple filled with the presence of God. The Spirit dwells among us and brings about fellowship. He talks about being called to the one hope that belongs to your call. In other words, we're like pilgrims on a destination on a traveling, on a journey to the same destination. If you find yourself along a road traveling with those who are moving to the same place as you, then there's immediately an affinity, a bond that exists between you, that you and I are called to be in God's presence eternally, and that's where we're going. He talks about one Lord, which means, of course, that you and I, we bow in the same direction. To call Jesus Lord is to say that he is the ruler of your life. Which, if you think about this, means that we ought to become more and more like one another because we're all under the lordship of the same Savior. And the more that we surrender to him, the more we find ourselves in partnership with each other. He speaks about one baptism. Baptism is the eraser of earthly differences to do with that, that are brought about by varying status on any level, be it economically, educationally, or especially spiritually. Because baptism says you go into the pool and you die. You're stripped of everything that you think you'd accomplished in life and you emerge as a newborn in the presence of God. Is one baptism. No one can claim to be better than anyone else in the family of God. He says, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all, which means, of course, friends, as I've been stressing all the way through, we are one family. My dear brothers and sisters, if you have been living a Christian life that is marked by an aloofness to the church, this church or whatever church you would call your home, the very direct provocation is not to be aloof anymore. Or if you have allowed animosities and grievances because of very real hurts that you've endured to cause you to feel skeptical, cynical, or at a distance from the family of God or individuals within the family of God. The very direct challenge to you, what Paul is urging and begging for, is that you'll make it right, that you'll sort your heart out before Jesus. We're to be eager, desperate, 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. My invitation to us all now as we move into a a few moments of worship together is that as we take communion, your participation in Christ as you eat the bread and drink the wine will be married with an intention, a deliberate desire to work out everything that you've been hearing today on the ground in your life. If you eat the one bread, you partake in the cup, then you are saying that everyone around me is part of the same family and it is a contradiction to take communion without seeing yourself as part of the family of God in a very meaningful, earthy way. So I urge you to set your heart straight and open your life up again in a real way to others.